Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So next week's sequel is sadly the last time we're going to be able to cover a Munchie movie with Munchie Strikes Back. But maybe this week's guest, after listening to this interview and just knowing that we need more Munchie, maybe I can start like a more Munchie hashtag. I really don't know how that stuff works, but... This week's guest, you know him as the writer-director of Choppy Mall. You know him from Munchie. You know him from Return of the Swamp Thing. And about 150 other movies. And that's Jim Minorski. Jim is a local guy to me. He grew up in Long Island. So we talked about how he went from there all the way to Hollywood. And it has to do with a particular flight and who he sat next to. So, of course, we're going to talk about you know, Roger Corman, his relationship with him. We talked Sorority House Massacre 2, which we covered last week. And we just talked about film in general, you know, how he likes it nowadays versus back then, uh, because he's shooting on a shoestring budget and he's able to get a lot done. I love just talking film with a guy because all in all, the guy is just a, a movie maker and that's what he does. And he's doing something right now with former guest Lisa London. It's a movie about Bigfoot. It's a comedy. It's going to be out soon. So I'll make sure that I put those links in the notes as soon as it comes out. And I'll be sharing on all our social media at sequels only. So before I start this week's interview, don't forget, watch Munchie Strikes Back. It's free on Amazon Prime. It's free on YouTube. And my buddy Nick, who came on for the Munchie review last year, I said, if you want to do another movie, you have to do another Munchie first. I'm excited to review it. And I'm excited for you to listen to this interview with his legendary Jim Wynorski. Is this Doug? It is Doug. How are you, Doug? How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Oh, I'm stuck at home. God damn it. But you're coming up with great ideas. You know, Cannibal Pep Squad looks pretty cool. Yeah, that's going to be fun. I wish I, could, I wish I could go shoot it tomorrow, but I can't. Lisa London's great. Uh, I interviewed her a couple months back. She was such a sweetheart. Yeah, well, uh, she really looked good and hot. Yeah, you remember that? And she, I think she's kind of maintained it over the years, so that's good. 40 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. So one thing that was pretty cool, I, I'm in New Jersey, and you grew up in Long Island? I certainly did. That's awesome, man. Do you miss it? Sometimes, you know, I have a lot of memories from there and, uh, um, but I'm, you know, memories are nice and I, I don't know. I haven't, no one there left to go see. Uh, okay. It's just, you know, it's would be nice to go back in time, but certainly not just go back there. Yeah, no. It's very expensive to live on Long Island. Yeah, no, it is. No, that's true. But it's expensive to live out where you're at, right? Well, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. So one thing I thought was really cool was uh, one of the personal quotes on your IMDb, which I never even noticed on here before, but the one that says, I try to make things I'll enjoy seeing because I'm going to watch these pictures for years to come and I don't want to be embarrassed. You know, I, I've only done a couple movies that I can recall that I'd rather not ever see again. But most of them I enjoyed making and, you know, I let them go for a while, but then, you know, 
an opportunity arises for me to check one of them out. And I, I find that I did a decent job. So, which is good. Yeah. What would you say is chopping mall, the one that people hold most near and dear, like fans when you, you know, go to festivals? I have a lot of chopping mall fans, a lot of fans with return of swamp thing. Yeah. Of people like not, not of this earth. Uh, different films get, get appreciated by different audiences. And that's yeah. fine. That's true. So it's funny. I don't know if you're like a football fan, but there's like these certain coaches in football. They have like this tree of people that worked under them. And I've interviewed a lot of people that you have worked with. So like Don Fauntleroy, who had such fond memories of, because when I go up and down people's IMDb's, I don't know what's going to strike a strike, just such a great chord. And when I mentioned Munchie, obviously we're not seeing each other, me and him or you and I, and he like lit up. It was like such a memorable experience for him. Cause that was his first time doing director of photography. He did a great job. I was very happy. He did. I think he did part two with his wife. He did. Yeah. So yeah, his wife came in instead of Lonnie Anderson and Leslie Ann down is unbelievable. She did. She was very good. And, 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 and uh, I, I enjoyed her performance a lot. Yeah. And those movies were fun to make, you know, a little living doll that you know, yeah. does a mischievous thing. And it was, I, it was my chance to do a, it was my chance to do a kid's movie. And I, I did to the best of my ability. And, uh, I, I think I threw a lot of adult humor in there, but you know, kids don't understand it. So it's okay. Well, that's most movies, even like Disney movies have adult jokes, but no, I love Dom DeLuise. Like who doesn't, if I saw that when I was a kid, I would have loved it. Because Don Deluise, you know, who doesn't love him? You know, he was uh, he was a handful. He was. I only, with, I only worked with him for a day. He came in the morning and left in the late evening, and we did every line from the movie. He was a very, very professional actor, and uh, I got along with him. It's just you know, he had uh, he wanted to have the thing totally catered. So yeah. we were, every other hour we were bringing in new food <laughs> and, you know, I wanted to make him happy. So there was, there was, everybody went home with extra food that night. That's good. So his character that he played, obviously he's a big, he was, he was a big guy, but his character in history of the world, that was, that was you. You guys were feeding him grapes while he's uh, ripping off, ripping off lines as much. It wasn't just grapes. It was everything. <laughs> everything and i'm talking banquet style <laughs> that's amazing we had a table in one of the studio you know studio rooms it's just you know there's a chef making stuff and that was part of his demand and i said you know let's meet his demand because the financials aren't that high but his 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 uh, food request was was through the roof, but I, you know, I went through it. I went for it and did it. You know, was there anybody else you had in mind for to voice Munchie? You know, we 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 hit a bunch of people up, and but when his name was mentioned by an agent, I said, "Oh, let's get him." Oh yeah, and you know, so that film was was fun because I worked with you know Hottie Lonnie Anderson, and yeah. I worked with. Jennifer Love Hewitt, and I worked with uh, uh, you know a lot of a lot of good actors. I know Artie Johnson from Laughing. Oh, I know, yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a, and you know Andrew Stevens. It was a good cast. 
It was a good cast. And it was fun. I thought it turned out pretty funny. Yeah, no, definitely. So when Jennifer Love Hewitt, when they when she comes in for an audition, did you know after working with her on that film? I know you worked on there a couple more, but did you know that she she was going to like turn out to you know what she became? You know, it was obvious from the the the, the from the beginning when we, when I started directing Munchie that she was uh, a wonderful actress, and you know she was there with her mother, and I walked up to her and her mother at, after I finished the film and I said you know I'm going to write a film just for you and she was very grateful about that and I wrote a film called Home for Christmas which you know the Disney Channel bought and um, that was the next film I made you know Jennifer Love Hewitt and and he was the lead with Howard Hessman (laughs) wow and then do you ever did you ever run into her because you're in Hollywood a lot like in the last like 20 years you ever bump elbows with her or anything Never, never. It's not that you know she was cold or anything. Oh, I know that. It, yeah, we never got to hitting, hitting, hitting each other up. Yeah, but um, you know she's been very. She was very successful, and I think she wanted a family, which she's having now, and and you know that's good. No, that's good. I interviewed uh, Peter Spellos, and he told me an amazing story. I don't know if he ever told you this. He was uh, he had a small role on an episode of Ghost Whisperer, and he was like outside standing there, and she came up, and that's you know twenty five, twenty four years after they worked together. Oh no, maybe it was only like fifteen years, and she came up and like was like, "Hey, Peter, how are you?" And he was like, "Wow, that is so cool that she remembers me." <laughs> Well, yeah, they had, they had a good, they had some good things together. He was a bus driver in, in Home for Christmas, which, you know, he was, he always loved Ralph Cramden. So, uh, so I made him Ralph Cramden. That's cool. <laughs> he had some great memories of working with you. Cause he said, and I, and I think it's true. And I think you'll agree. The big thing when I think of like Jim Wynorski is relationships. Cause if you look at, your films that you've made over the years, you work with a lot of the same people. Like you've worked with, you know, like Steve Neal, you worked with on a couple of films. He did special effects. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Yeah. You can tell who I'm going out with by the, the cast of the movies. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like to, Tony Naples is, is in a bunch of your movies too. Yeah. I was, I was good friends with Tony for a long time. Still am. Oh, nice. Tracy Lords, uh, Monique Gabrielle. There's a there's a host of them. Yeah, they're great. all great. They're all great people. And that gives you the ability to be able to shoot a film, you know, in, a, in quicker time. Not like you're speeding, but you don't have to do as many takes because you have people that you know what they're going to do almost before they do it. Exactly, and who will show up on time. Yes, and know them, and know their line. And is, you know, yeah, they could be they can be sexy as all get out, but if I'm sitting there waiting from waiting for them to remember a line or two, I go nuts. <laughs> I'm on a short I'm on a short lease in terms of time. Yeah. What's the shortest you ever shot a film time wise? Two days. Two days, wow. Two days. And made a lot of money. Back is the, yeah. I did a movie. I did a thing called the Bear Winch Project. Oh yeah, and it was ten thousand dollars, and I I just wanted to do a Blair Witch type parody. Yeah, 
and I only had 10 grand to spend total. And so my buddy Chuck Serino and I, I hired some chicks. We put them in a van on Friday. Or was it Thursday? I don't know. Something like that. And we drove up to um, a, a local resort area. And we shot all day, all night, and all day the next day. Then drove back home, went over to Julie Strains and kept shooting. And and uh, we were done in two days. Wow. It was, it was the most amazing two days ever. And the film, you know, Showtime bought it. And uh, I think that we made four sequels. So it was an interesting thing. Definitely. I, as a teenager at that time, I thank you because I saw a lot of those on Showtime. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I lived on the late night Showtime and cinema. How did that start? Was that the first one that you did of those kind of films? 1999, yeah. That was probably the first thing I did. Yeah. How did that come up to you? You had the idea out of nowhere? Like, hey. You know, Bear, Blair Witch. Yeah, was out. I think in 1998 or nine, early 99, and I said, you know, I got to do a, yeah. I got to do a rip of this, and I didn't have a lot of money, so I just, I called, you know, five ladies I knew very well that could, you know, do a lot of improv, and I put all put them in a van, <laughs> put them in a van, drove up to. Uh, the Poconos, not Poconos, uh, where did I drive to? I drove to uh, Gorman, Gorman, California, which is uh, Mount Pinos area. And uh, we got out and we ad-libbed the whole thing. Oh, wow. In two days, there's no script. I just basically said, this is what happens in this scene. That's awesome. This is what happens in this scene. And we did it. That's how we got away with two days. Oh, my God. And, and uh, you know, if, it didn't, if the scene wasn't working, I said, okay, just stop. Let's go back and do it again. Yeah. And and we got a lot done in two days. Yeah. I think, and then, I think it was an 80-minute movie in two days. Quite fun. That's phenomenal. Now, one thing I, I, I have to ask you. So when you were on the airplane way back when, I don't know exactly what year it was, and how did it come up, the person that you're sitting next to, that they knew Roger Corman. Were you just talking film and you say, Hey, I love this it, guy. It, Roger. No, it was, it was, it was pure coincidence. Wow. But if I hadn't been on that flight and I hadn't been in first class, everything would have been different. You'd be on Long Island. Well, I'd be somewhere <laughs> else. Let me tell you, because uh, I, I still would have fought you know, fought for a career in, in the movies, but I just happened to be in the right moment at the right time. And, uh, it, you know, I wouldn't have been there had I not been fired from my big, my, I had a nice job with 20th Century Fox. Oh, no way. And I was in Georgia. And I was location manager for uh, a new Fox TV series called Breaking Away. That was based on the movie. And, um, Coincidentally, with my arrival there, someone started making obscene phone calls to all the sorority houses. And although they had no reason to, you know, you know, suspect me, I was the first person there. And Fox said, "Just get rid of the guy." Ugh. And the producer 
who, you know, was a good guy. His name was Herbert B. Leonard. And he had produced, you know, old TV shows like Rig 1010 and uh, Route 66. He knew I wasn't guilty, but he was being forced to do it. So he gave me some severance pay and put me on a plane back to L.A. first class. And because I was on that first class flight, that's how I met this woman. Wow. Who knew, who knew Roger Corman. So in a, way, it all worked, in a way, it all worked out. I thought my career was over. Yeah. He said, he said, he said don't worry, I won't tell anybody. No one needs to know. And I said, good, because I didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't do it. So, but, you know, that's the movie business, my friend. No, and then I think that's a lot of people I talk to, even like I know you worked with William Sadler, and, and uh, he had a moment like that, too. He auditioned for Tales from the Crypt, and when he walked in, he thought he was auditioning for, like, a main role on the, on the pilot episode, and it was for, like, a little bit role. So out of nowhere, he was done reading it, and he went to the, la- the lady that was the casting director, and he's like, you know what, can I ro- read for the role of the executioner? And she's like, yeah, we're kind of looking for somebody that's like more hip right now. And he rattled off a bunch of names. So then he like left while in the parking lot, the lady screams out the window and she's like, you know what, Bill, come back up. We'll, 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 we'll tape it. And then the rest is history. He got that from that. He was able to work with, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, the guy that did Sean Shawshank, the director and writer for that. Yeah. 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 I know it. it- yeah, you know, I worked. With, I worked with William Sadler, and he's a good guy. I saw that. Yeah, and Tiny Lister on uh, the movie with Ice too. Was there ever a time early on that you worked with anyone, like when you did Big Bo- Big Bad Mama too, like working with Angie Dickinson? Was there ever a time that Jim Wynorski was, you know, starstruck at all? You know, Angie turned out to be one of the nicest people I ever met. Oh, really? That's nice. Mm-hmm. She was kind to everyone on set. Uh, she'd throw birthday parties for PAs. Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, uh, when the film got finished, I, you know, or I think toward the end, I said, you know, the, the first movie I ever went to see was Rio Bravo. My father took me. Oh, wow. I said, and I said, I, 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 he said I was, I said, but I was about nine. And he took me to see Rio Bravo. So I said, you were the first leading lady I ever saw. And, you know, she was very appreciative of that. And so I've I've maintained a good relationship with her over the years. Oh, wow. That's like full circle. How cool is that? First movie you see is that, and then you're directing her, you know, so many years later. I I found that kind of ironic. And, uh, but it was, it was, it was fun. She did a great job in the movie and I was very happy. Yeah. So you were writing for a while in the beginning for like the first three films that got made. How did it come to the point that you're like, you know what? I'm ready to direct. Did you direct anything small before the lost empire? You know, I did not. I, I directed some, some, uh, uh, TV trip, not TV, movie trailers. Oh, okay. It's like cutting them. When there wasn't any good footage, I would go out to a set or someplace and shoot additional footage oh, cool. that wasn't wasn't in the movie to put in the trailer. So it was a complete bullshit 
<laughs> but Roger Corman loved it. He said, he said, you made the trailer better. And as long as it's got people in seats, he didn't care. Yeah. And then, then, then when that opportunity came up, you wrote Lost Empire. And he was like, here you go, kid. Well, it wasn't Roger. It was a guy named Henry Plitt. Who oh, okay. Plitt Theaters. And yeah, he, he needed a tax loss or something like that. So um, he gave me my first chance. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> That's great. You know, but I still, the, still, the film still made money. And yeah. It became sort of a drive-in cult classic. And so as soon as that got done, uh, Julie Corman, Roger's wife, hired me to write and direct uh, Chopping Mall. And I wrote it with, with a good pal of mine, Steve Mitchell. Wow. How did you get inspired for that, for it to be robots? Because I, from what I was reading, they basically said, like, oh, an intruder to the mall. But how did you think of robots? Vestron said they wanted a movie about a killer in the mall. That's all he said. Yeah. Killer in the mall. So uh, Steve and I did not want to write a guy with a knife running around the mall, because I believe there was already a movie called Phantom of the Mall out at the time. So uh, I may be wrong with my dates here because it's so long ago, but I think Phantom of the Mall was, was before Chopping Mall. But anyway, uh, to get the answer to your story, uh, when I was a kid, I saw this movie on, on local TV in New York called God. G-O-G. And it was an Ivan Tours sci-fi movie about an underground complex that went down seven levels and it was completely controlled by a computer. And some Russian spies in a spaceship in orbit above this complex starts getting control of the computer and starts killing off people. Wow. And in and in this complex are two robots called Gog and Magog after the Greek tragedy. And there are these two robots that shoot flames and kill people because they've been reprogrammed to go out and kill people. And and so Steve and I said, well, well let's take that premise. Let's say that there's security robots. And instead of going down seven levels, we went up, you know, three levels yeah. in, a, in a shopping mall and uh, set them loose. And we, of course, we uh, messed up the computer, so they were, they were on a killing spree. And that's how shopping mall became what it is. I mean, we were accused of ripping off a movie called Trapped about some people trapped in a, a mall with some guard dogs, but that wasn't really our inspiration. I don't even see how it's the same thing just because you swap out dogs for it's a lot of mall movies. Then yeah, I don't know how people can even do that. You know, I, 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 I saw trapped once, but I, it didn't inspire me. Yeah. I can see it again. when not even available, but it's, uh, James Brolin, I think is in it. And uh, he's trapped inside the mall with some people. And that, Guard dogs are finding ways to get to them. <laughs> so, it, so in effect, it does have a kind of a chopping mall significance. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, 
but but my my inspiration was God. That's awesome. That's cool. Thank you for that. So no so so one thing that we do when I I mostly interview people, like honestly, I love talking to people about film. So even if they're not in a sequel, I'll still talk to them. But we basically talk about like movie sequels, and you've worked with a lot of them. You've done a lot of movie sequels. Mm-hmm. Well, what's your take on them? Especially if you don't do anything with the first one. So like when you work on like Deathstalker 2. And my, like, Deathstalker, my, my Deathstalker has nothing to do with the first one at all. Oh, so it's standalone really? It just uses that name? The only, the only thing it has in common with the first one is the title. Oh, okay. That's it. Deathstalker 1 and Deathstalker 2 are two completely different. Okay. 100, 180 degree animals. Because I made mine as an action comedy. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the other one was deadly serious Conan kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Big Bad Mama Two is was you know just my attempt to do a spaghetti western. Yeah. And which is unlike the first one. And what else did I do? That was sequel I did. Oh, well, Return I Return of the Swamp Thing. One thing I just I said I got to make the costume better, yeah, and I got to I, and I got to play up the humor a little bit more, and which I did, and I added a lot of things to the script with uh, my buddy John Terleski, who sat and wrote scenes with me. He's not in the movie, but he was a good friend of mine and still is, and he and I kind of rewrote the script to Return of Swamp Thing. Oh, so it was already there was already a script and you rewrote it? Yeah, it's, it's credited these two guys, and and it was a premise that you know it was kind of boring. So I took a little bit of their premise, but then wrote all these new scenes. Uh, for instance, everything with the two kids was added. Oh yeah, I like that part. I just watched it because I interviewed Steve, and I know he worked on that a little bit. So I wanted to talk to him about it. Yeah, I called Steve. I said, "Can you deliver some monsters?" And he did. Yeah, no, he's good. So for that movie, you worked with a very young Heather Locklear. She was so fucking hot. <laughs> so fun. And she was very sweet too. Yeah. And and we were down in in. Um, Savannah, Georgia, making that movie for the most part. And uh, I shot some new stuff here in LA, but just more like pickups and things. Yeah, no, I love the scene with her and the swamp thing. And when they have like their, when he, when she eats the root and they have oh, yeah. like, the, that's that whole like little like montage is so different. It was cool. Well, I didn't want to do it the way they'd written it. I wanted to do it like kind of a dream. Yeah. Scene. And Heather hated the guy. And I said, I don't want to deal with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I do it myself, Heather, but I'm, I got to yell the action and cut. Yeah. So, uh, so she understood. And we just did it. You know, it was out in the, out in the swamp. It worked that nice. Yeah, no, I, I still... Yeah, I watched it and it was still just as good as it when I saw it when I was a kid. And then one thing I talked with Peter about was uh, Sorority House Massacre too. That was the first time you and him met. Yeah, that was a, that was one of those movies I just that just came propped up out of nowhere. Roger was going out of town. 
<laughs> and and they had all these sets left over from another film, and they were empty. They were vacant. They'd taken all the props and furniture back, and just the minimum amount of stuff was left there. And I said, I can make a movie on those sets. And I and I went to his wife, Julie, and she said, I'll give you the money, but don't tell Roger I'm doing it. Okay, so they were going to be gone for like nine or ten days. I wrote the script in like three days. <laughs> wow. I wrote it in three days. And the, the day they left, I started shooting. Really? Wow. I had a seven-day schedule. And we shot that fucker, you know, like at breakneck pace. And it was it still wasn't long enough. So I, I cribbed some footage from Slumber Party Massacre and did this whole sequence, this flashback sequence. Oh, yeah, yeah. And That's smart. I had, and I had Peter Spellos um, narrate it. And uh, that film just went through the roof. Roger, Roger came back and he didn't even know I'd made it. <laughs> and, and he was down on the, he was down at the stage and he said, what's all this mess on this, on these sets? And, he, and someone said, oh, Jim Wynorski did that last week <laughs> when he was filming. And Roger, of course, said, filming what? And they didn't know. So the next thing I do is I'm at home. I'm getting, I get a call from, from Roger. He says, did you shoot a film here last week? And I said, yes. And he says, well, what did you make? I said, I made a movie called, uh, it was called Nighty Nightmare. And, (laughs) and, uh, and it was also uh, the slate said Jim Wynorski's house of babes as the title. (laughs) And, he said, well, can I see it? I said, well, you ask your wife. It's her, it's her production. Oh, wow. He called me back. He said, I want to see what you've got. And so I drove down to the, to the stage, and Nina Gilberti, who was cutting it, said, here you go. Here's, what's, here's what I got so far. And Roger was very impressed. And he says, can you make a movie like this again? And I said, sure. And... He said, well, go make it. I'll, I'll pay for it this time. So I, I, I changed some stuff, and I brought the same cast back, basically. And I made a thing called Hard to Die. Yeah, yeah. Melissa Moore is great. She's in a, a bunch of your films, right? Melissa Moore is only in two movies. Oh, Hard she's to in two of them. Okay. Sorority House Massacre, too. So she's in two movies. But we're, we were good friends. Yeah, it's just that you know that's all she ever worked. She worked with me on on those two pictures, and you know we had a great time. We we knew each other socially, and it was a lot of fun to make the film. Yeah, still friends with Gail, and um, I think two of the girls from Hard to Die have already passed away. Oh, so time's going by, but uh, yeah, um, Bridget Carney. Was who was in Hard to Die, and also Karen Mayo Chandler also passed away. Uh, so, but Gail's around, and uh, um, Melissa's still around, Stacia, Javago is still around. So they're around. Yeah, yeah. So at this point in your career, you're a pretty busy guy. 
I was sometimes making six films a year. I know. That's what I see here. I'm like, wow, this guy does not stop because you love it. I, I was enjoying myself too. I was cranking them out. And this is the point. This is why I wanted to ask you because obviously you now I know that Death Stalker is a, you know, really a standalone film, just has the same name. But like, so it has here uh, House Four. You wrote the story for House Four. Oh, House Four. That was an awful experience. Oh. Awful. Fucking Sean Cunningham. What an asshole. What an asshole. You know, he, he, he didn't know anything about filmmaking. Just watching that movie is cringeworthy. Um, I wrote a really good script with my buddy, RJ Robertson. And we gave him this really good script and they, they turned it around and turned it into a, a mess. Ugh. And they even, then they tried to take my name off it. So I had to sue the bastard and uh, go to arbitration at the writer's guild. I, had, I made him put my name back on the film just because I wanted to piss him off. Yeah. And you want to make sure I mean, you get paid. Other, other, other times I've, I've, I've written anonymously and said, I've just put it out. Okay. But this guy was such a dickhead that I made him take me. I, I, I made him go to arbitration. Yeah. And I won. And I won. That's so, awesome. Um, so like with that, did they come to you? Did like a studio say, Hey, we're looking for scripts for house four. Yeah. And they, they came to me and said, would you like to, you know, write and direct house four? Yeah. I said, sure. So I ended up not directing. They hired this guy, Louis Abernathy, who was a dick. <laughs> and and uh, he totally fucked up the movie. So, but anyway, it's a, it's a credit. Yeah. No, I would love to have seen your version of it. I still get residuals, so. That's all that matters. Yeah. yeah. No, one movie that uh, I, I don't know where you, how much your script was different, but Beastmaster too, because I was such a fan of Beastmaster. Did your set? Did your version of the script have him traveling to 1990s Los Angeles too? Listen to this. So yeah, they asked me for a sequel to to Beastmaster. Yeah, and I said I don't want to do the same thing again. So I came up with it that if there was a dimensional porthole between the Beastmaster's world and ours, okay? And we wrote this script, R.J. Robertson and I. And the director, Sylvia Cabot, was so thick-headed, he did not understand a dimensional porthole. He <laughs> thought it was time travel between, and so that's why the, the subheading for Beastmaster 2 is through the portal of time. Yeah, and it's not a, it's not a time portal, it's a dimensional portal. Yeah, but he he didn't understand that, and um, there was another case where they tried to take my name off. I wonder why they do it just to save money. Is that what it is, really? Uh, uh yes, yeah. somewhat. But I took them to Harvard. I sued them instantly, and Republic Pictures picked it up. And Republic Pictures would only sign up, sign on the dotted line if there was no encumbrances on the movie. Oh, nice. So I immediately, I immediately sued them. And I had to go to another arbitration meeting. I built them out of, out of a lot more than they would have had to pay if they just had paid me and given me the credit. <laughs> That's great. 
So, so again, we talked, you did six films some years. So what about the transition, like filmmaking nowadays versus when you started? Do you like the way it is now, like digital, or do you prefer the Yeah, of course. Of course. It's easier. Yeah, that's true. I'm still making movies. No, you are. I'm still making, but with different format, you know, and it's easier now. Yeah. You know, you don't need 40 people under your, you know, as, as, you know, filmmakers, you can do it with 10 or less sometimes. So you could save money, be able to get it done faster. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. A couple of movies. One I checked out uh, over the weekend was Baranaconda. And I, I, I enjoyed that movie. You did a lot for sci-fi. Baranaconda. That was a good one. That was in Hawaii. Yeah. Michael Madsen. That guy's, that guy's top notch. I've done four films with Mike. He's a great guy. Yeah. That's awesome. No nonsense. Goes out drinking with you. Has a good time. You know, that's what you need. So, <laughs> yeah. I had, I, I forgot Piranha. Piranha Condo was like in Hawaii for the most part. I remember, I don't remember. Oh, I think Rib Hillis is in that film. And, yeah. He's great in it. And Terry uh, Ivins, she was like a big soap star. Yeah, they were both very nice, and I've worked with Rib a number of times, and Carrie once, and uh, yeah, I had I you know I had a good time there, especially in Hawaii. How can you not have a good time? Yeah. So Jim, this has been great. One thing I had to ask you because you've done so many different types of genres, do you like one particularly more than the other, or do you love being able to every so often switch it up? Well, I like doing. If I did every every film was a horror film, I'd be bored. So if every film was, you know, since I've done westerns, I've done action thrillers, I've done monsters, I've done vampires, I've done I've done every every almost every genre, uh, except World War Two or something like that. But I've done a lot of genres. Military, I've done. I've done. I've done everything, and I enjoy it. Because it's fun, you know, and and you get to meet some good actors. Sometimes you meet some of your your heroes from when you were a kid, and other times you meet the hottest chicks in the world. <laughs> and most times, for me, you get to meet hot chicks. So uh, there's nothing there's nothing really bad about it. No, that doesn't sound bad at all. <laughs> at all. <laughs> That's so true. No, because you did a bunch of family films in the last few years. I have a daughter. She's not really to the point that she's going to comprehend it. We're watching like Sesame Street and stuff, but that was pretty cool. Doggone Christmas, Doggone Hollywood, Nessie and me. did that for a reason, man. That's because um, the action films were not selling. Oh, okay. And horrors was, were, hard, were hard to get, get off the ground because there was so much competition. But what there's no competition for hardly is family movies. So I said, okay, I can do family movies. And, you know, that's why the last, I don't know, five or six or seven I've done have all been, you know, G-rated family movies. Because that's what's selling, you know? That's what you got to do. You have to make what people want. And, you know, but, you know, New filmmakers say, well, I got to make a horror film. That's what I've always wanted to do. But look at what the market is like right now. That's true, yeah. Not not really, you know, glue, you know, you know, 
queued up for horror. But I will give you, and any potential filmmakers out there should start thinking about making a movie that will be ready right after this coronavirus disappears. Because Hollywood will not gear up until 2021. Really? Even if they went back to work tomorrow, which they're not, it's going to take a while to write scripts and get stuff okay. There won't be any fall TV season this year. It's going to be a whole different ball game. Yeah, I had this idea, and I know there's a ton of red tape, and that's probably why they can't do it. But wouldn't it be really cool if they took like old pilots that are just sitting in the vault that never saw like the public eye and just like throw them on TV? And I think that'd be so cool. Well, they won't do that because they need, if, if it's a success. Oh, I know. Yeah. They'll want another one. No, I know. And they usually, you know, throw those pilots into the mix in the summertime during reruns. But, um, if, if someone were to make a movie now about something that's interesting, the, uh, the next thing up would be to make it quickly after the coronavirus disappears or uh, at least goes away for, you know, the most part. Yeah. And then you'll have, you'll have a movie that, that you can sell before any of the big boys have their, in their pants buckled up. No, that's true. And is that where your that's your plan is? As soon as they give you the okay, you're out the door. That's what my plan is. That's awesome. You have it all written and everything. I'm I've written two of them already. Oh wow! And uh, you know, one was already in progress, but now there's another one I'm you know writing, and I'm going to get them in production the moment it's safe to you know get people together, and then I, I, I'm going to edit them and get them out. And there'll be no competition. Smart. You're a smart guy. <laughs> I'm doing a family movie and I'm doing a, a kind of a sexy horror comedy, which is Cannibal Pep Squad. Yeah. Right no, that's awesome, man. Hey, one thing I never talked to you about, and before I let you go, I got to ask, Screwballs. That was like a movie that my dad showed me when I was like way too young. And Good for him. Great movie, man. And I love the poster. I'm reading right now. You designed that poster? I stole it. Okay, let me tell you where I stole it from. They can't sue me. It's been too long. <laughs> um, I needed a poster that was iconic in nature. And if you remember the Screwballs poster, it's a girl running away. You don't see her face. Yeah. And it's a guy running after her and you don't see his face. You just see his arms and maybe his knees stretched out and he's got a hold of her bra and stretching. Very calm. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 I took that image from a old mad magazine. Oh, I love this. In the, in the, at the beginning, at the, at the, in the original pages of mad in the eighties, they used to have a masthead with all these little tiny illustrations in the masthead. All these, you know, it wasn't any bigger than, than a postage stamp, maybe smaller. Yeah. But the whole masthead was this big size of a page. And 
in the in the borderlines of it, you, there were all these little illustrations. Well, one day I was just reading one of my Mad Magazine, <laughs> and I looked at it, I said, that's a great image. I can take that. And I, I stole it almost directly from the <laughs> Mad Magazine. And no one's ever caught me, but it was, it was a great little piece of art, and it, I thank Alfred E. Newman for the inspiration. Yeah. Iconic, like you said, iconic poster. It was in every video fucking store from here to Timbuktu. Yeah. Okay. In the eighties. You couldn't escape that in every video store. And uh and the movie was fun because it was a great way to you know you know, kids could see some nudity for, for nothing. Oh yeah. Just no, for the price, the price of a dollar rental, you know. So that's what that's what those movies were, and they were funny, they had good funny characters. No, definitely. I remember I wrote it with Linda Shane from Humanoids from the Deep. And uh, we exec produced it up in Canada. Oh, nice. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you for all the stories and the memories. Uh, it was a blast. And I love how interactive you are with people on your Facebook. I think that's really cool. Fans love you, man. Uh, well, I wish you and your listeners to, uh, all the health in the world. I hope you all stay safe. And I hope you uh, get out from under all this nonsense in in, in short order. Okay. And uh, Doug, I thank you for the questions. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. Man, the stories Jim had to tell about like Dom DeLuise. And how about screwballs? How amazing is that? He admitted to it. He thanked Alfred E. Newman all these years later for that poster. Jim, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know, absolute blast just finding out, you know, really the nuts and bolts, nuts and bolts to the robots in Chopping Mall. So don't forget your homework. Watch Munchie Strikes Back, Amazon Prime. Most of America has it. I think it comes with being an American citizen now. And it's free on YouTube as well, which I know you can find that. And don't forget to follow us on all social media at sequels only. And don't forget to check out our website, sequelsonly.com. Good night.